Welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm Peter Neal. My guest today is Carrie Arsenault, author of Milltown, Reckoning with What Remains, published in 2020 by St. Martin's Press and winner of many distinguished literary prizes, among them the 2021 Rachel Carson Environmental Book Award and the main literary award for nonfiction. Milltown is a book of narrative nonfiction, investigative memoir, and cultural criticism that illuminates the rise and collapse of the working class, the hazards of loving and leaving home, and the ambiguous nature of toxics and disease with the central question, who or what are we willing to sacrifice for our own survival? Carrie, welcome. I read Milltown over the weekend, and I was just so impressed by its structure and, and moved by its, its honesty and emotion. And it demands a, a different kind of conversation, I think, than previous Pointed Furs interviews. It's complicated stuff in a seemingly simple format that is historical and polemical and philosophical and sentimental all at once and sort of quickly transcends the notions of Maine and vacation land, the way, the way life should be. <laughs> Let's start with your quotation that's at the end of your book of John McPhee's observation, rivers are the ultimate metaphors of existence, the Androscoggin River that flows through the towns of Mexico and Rumford and their mills and overtime figures as a constant, continuous pathway that carries Maine's wildness. You were born there. What has it been? What now does that river for you come to mean? First, hi, hi, and thank you for having me on. I like what you just said um, about how it carries Maine's wildness, which is so um, opposite of how I saw the river growing up, right? We didn't swim or boat or fish in it because like this town, like so many industrial towns, was basically a sewer. Um, it was a source of power and a sewer for the mill that was on it. And that's kind of part of what I was trying to do to take that, to take that river. It's also not what it should be, like what rivers are seen as by most environmental writers or nature writers. It's the op. It was the opposite of that for me. Also, if you grow up around a body of water, like so many towns, it becomes the focal point. And so our body of water was that, except for it. The, the, like I said, it was a dump, but it also had this big smokestack in the middle of it. You know, like it was, I thought of it as two kinds of things. It was either an index finger kind of pointing at us or a middle finger just giving us the finger the whole time. I mean, that's that's to start. I mean, what it became as I wrote the book was a metaphor too for the human body because it contains and is formed by all the things that run through it. Yeah, wildness. I've been on the river. I've been on the river, but I've been on the parts, you know, upstream or downstream where you don't get the sense that that's uh, that there's any poison in the river at all. It's blissful. But the town itself, talk a little bit about growing up there and your family and your history, your family history. Yeah, I mean, I grew up at a, I had a pretty happy childhood, really, as far as everything else goes. You know, we played in the streets. We came home at dark. We had tons of kids running around town. Um it was a pretty basic childhood, I think, in the 70s, you know, growing up. There was no crime. There was no drug, drug epidemic. There wasn't a lot of poverty, really, even. 
So growing up there, you know, that's all to say, but I didn't really know that we were really being poisoned either though. So, you know, that I only realized that, you know, it's decades later. So then it complicates, was it a great childhood? You know, if I was being poisoned and, and my family had been poisoned for generations, right? You describe your family uh, growing up, your high school experience. I was really interested about your description of a Acadian immigrants. Uh, mm -hmm. Because it's, it's yet another example of people from away who come into Maine, you know, right up to the moment with Somali refugees and soon to be Ukrainians coming to our state and putting down their roots. And now, particularly with Acadians, leaving a long and kind of wonderful traditional history in the culture uh, and in the sort of mentality, the psychology of, of parts of these communities. Yeah. Could you expand on that just a little bit? You know, I didn't really know a lot about my that Acadian history, sort of the technical aspects of it. You know, I just knew that our families were from French Canada and from Acadia, and we still had relatives up there. And we had these traditions that I didn't even realize were Acadian traditions, you know, again, until I started researching the book. So it was, it was I was researching these things, but I was also researching myself, you know, identity in and of itself. Uh, let me go back for a second. I was also surprised because we didn't learn any of this in school, even though we were required to do reports about the state of Maine. And our, our community was probably 80% Acadian or French Canadian. So we didn't really get taught anything. So it was only until I was, what, 50 or late 40s till I started really understanding what being Acadian meant. And for me, it was a place of, it was a place of not just exodus, but genocide. I mean, Acadians had been um, kicked out of their land and killed by British and New England forces in 1755. A lot of people got sent to lands far and away by ships expelling them. And some of my family like hid in the woods on Prince Edward Island and started all over again up there. And it wasn't until, what, the you know, 1860 to 1904 something when the mass uh, exodus of French Canadian and Canadian and French speaking immigrants moved to the United States for the Industrial Revolution. And that's when my family came to the United States. They didn't come the way of the Mayflower necessarily, or at least that side of the family didn't. The other side, that's a different story. <laughs> so they arrive. It's a kind of constant circle of arrival and departure and and return. Uh, we see it again and again. You, your generation in those towns, some went away and came back. Uh, many, many, many stayed and they became kind of the heart of a community that was, it seemed from the book a little bit, it was comfortable, it was closed in its own way, and it was nurtured in that by a kind of paternalism which was projected by the, the, the founding of the factories, the founding of the mills. That's yeah. an amazingly interesting story of how one man can come into a community through energy, imagination, capitalism, uh, begin something that essentially creates a community and its identity for all time. Uh, to, to step back from that, just one step, and then we'll go forward to him, but you know, that, that idea of a constant arrival and, and departure and arrival departure, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up too, because that's really the plot of this book, 
is is me leaving home and coming home. I mean, I as I write this book, you see me leaving and coming and leaving and coming, and it mirrors that sort of journey. I mean, in a very small way of Acadians, of migration, you know, and and trying to understand who you are when you leave a place because, you know, we're, you're never the same person once you leave those emotional and intellectual or physical landscapes that bear us out. Because with each departure and return, you know, we calibrate our distance and proximity from who we once were, who we are, who we want to be, or who people think we are or were or something. You know, it's a it's a constant recalibration of like identity and home. So that that was something I was trying to to explore too in the book, like the Acadian migration or like any population that that's happening at. It's like, especially when Acadia doesn't even exist anymore. So what do you call your ancestral home if it doesn't even exist? And a little bit like that for me, because the home that I left, Rumford in Mexico, is not really what it was, right? Or is it? Am I just different? You know, so there's just, it's a lot of questions. There's more questions than there are answers, I guess. <laughs> That's what's lovely about coming home, right? To a small town is that, you know, th that is where I feel most comfortable, I think, in, in almost all circumstances. I can go there. People know me. They know my parents. They know who I am or where I come from. There's no misunderstanding at that base level of who I am. There's no interpretation they need to do. They get it because that's what formed me. The same things that form them, even if we're different people, you know? And part of that formation too, back to Hugh Chisholm, he was instrumental in forming that mentality because like you said, he 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 built the town, he built the buildings, the rivers, the record. I mean, he made canals, he owned the power company. He built the library. He built homes for the mill workers. He built the mill. He did everything. And it was um, it was really interesting to, to look at that and see uh, the effect of that, even though that was back in 1901 when the mill opened. It still, I think, affects the leadership of the town today in that they sort of look to outside leadership for kind of dependence on it, but at the same time, they reject it. Does that make any sense? Oh, it certainly does, yeah. Chisholm is an astonishing example of colonial paternalism. He he was a Renaissance man. He was filled with generosity and charity, motivated by capital, but nonetheless, he was a socialist. He was a democratic socialist up to a point. Then he became uh, a, a kind of autocrat in his way. But talk a little bit more about that history. It's, it's amazing what he did. Yeah, I mean... It is hard. I tried to write this too, so that you know, Hugh Chisholm is not a bad guy or the or a Superman. I mean, he he's a complicated man, like you said. He, I think, he probably was generous in spirit. His mind was in the right place, but also he did have his eye on the prize, which was the bottom line of his company and of his pocketbook, right? I don't know if you know this, but he was the founder of International Paper, which is still the largest paper conglomerate or company in the world. I don't know. Maybe I'm misquoting that. But what I can't fault him for is he started like he pulled himself up by the bootstraps. His father died when he was a very young boy and he started working at like, I don't know, age 10 or something, you know, selling things on a, on a train. So I think that that kind of um, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps is something that people in our town really admired too of him, you know, and he pulled himself so mm -hmm. far up, he went up and out beyond you know, 
the landscape of anything we could have ever done. And and while his generosity persisted, like he even gave turkeys to people at Christmas and he helped build the ski area that I grew up, that my father helped build. He even donated, he donated workers time so those guys could go and cut down trees and build the ski area. But that dependency, like I, I say, it kind of got watered down after generations. You know, he gave the mill to his son and his son gave it to his son. And as it came watered down, right, the generosity and the sort of closeness of the community, what happened, and this happened all across industry in America, it became watered down so that it wasn't just a man, it was a company. And then in our case, the, the company turned into like a chemical company, and then it was a conglomerate, and then it was owned by really outside interests. Like Chisholm had a house in, you know, New York City and Portland, Maine, but now it's owned by a Chinese company. You know, the owners are so far away from the people that live there. So as the ownership got watered down, the corporation became stronger, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, it's when you look at the major corporations in Maine uh, across the board, many of them are not even owned by people in the United States. Right. Um, let's talk about the mill itself. Can you paint that picture of what it was like? I grew up, you know, smelling the mill every day of the sulfur smell. You could hear the kachink of the conveyor belt as the logs went up and into a chute. The logging trucks went racing by our house all the time. We lived on a busy road between the forest and the mill. I mean, it was a it was a very um, visceral and like loud, in a way, place to grow up. But it became background noise, right? Because everything is just what you get used to. That's what life is, you know? It, it was background noise. So all these sounds and sights and smells became unnoticeable to me as I grew up. They were just part of my daily bread in a way. And and it wasn't until I was like 45 and I started sort of writing little vignettes about my family that a few friends who were writers too said, wow, that's that's really interesting. And I was like, is it? I thought, you know, is it really interesting? And it was apparently something that not a lot of people really knew about these kind of small rural towns. The factory itself, the mill itself, you painted, it's a, it's a living machine. Uh, you yeah. know, this en endless stream of forests of trees coming up, dumped into the yards, stripped and put into the furnace, the bleaching. It was like a big mechanical, like animal, right? That's what it, yeah. that's what it felt like. That's yeah. the only way to describe it. It was just chewing up and spitting out and creating things like, and, and that's what it did really in the end. It, it didn't just chew up and spit out paper, but it chewed up people too. Well, talk about that. I mean, you talk about your father, you talk about many individuals and members of your family, the working conditions. You know, I really had no idea. I, I'm so naive about these things, but this was hard, dangerous work. And there was this insidious subtext that nobody really understood at the time, which was the pollution and the polluting, not just of the river and the waste, but also the pollution of everyone who worked there and lived in the town. Right. Yeah. Pollution doesn't stay where you put it. So even if you just put it in the river, which they did a lot of, it's not going to even stay in the river. If you put it in the air, it doesn't just affect the mill workers, right? Like I was saying, I looked at the river sort of as a metaphor for the human body and how 
it contained everything that went through our bodies, just like the river did, right? And it even got, the river even got manipulated by machines, like the bubbler that we put in the river because it had no oxygen left. And just like the machine that put oxygen in my father's blood when he was dying, you know. The river is also sort of a, it, it showed how our lives proceeded too. It, it's a metaphor for that. Like, our lives don't go in a straight path and neither do these toxics. Like I was just saying, you know, they don't stay where you put them. So the river kind of mirrors that, you know, it's, we take circuitous routes that are sometimes decided by us and sometimes not just like a river. Few people left. I mean, in the sense of the, the circuitry of, of that, it was a circular inward spiral of community. It seems to me it was a courageous thing to leave or it was a, it was unthinkable uh, for many, many people who had had to stay or chose to stay. But there was this building of this beginning of this paradox between justice and injustice, that the kind of social egalitarian model that was first built by the factory and the factory community and the housing and the store and the community center and the library and all of these things that are considered civic good and a, and, and a kind of social justice in the context of, of an industrial place. But then suddenly it dilutes. Yeah. I mean, that goes, I think that's why with the dilution of a human being being there and seeing what's going on to a conglomerate that doesn't know what's going on with the people, right? I think that's where the dilution started happening. I mean, it was that, but there were also things outside of that mill and outside of this town and that were happening all across America. They, you know, unions were getting busted in the 80s. There was every man and woman for themselves at that point. There were, there were a lot of things that were happening in a, in a sort of socioeconomic, I mean, I'm not an ec economist or anything, but there were a lot of things happening like that too. There's a big opioid crisis there. Poverty went way up because paper manufacturing went way down. I've just been researching something too that there's not, they're actually running out of paper in the world. I've been talking to some magazine publishers. They're actually running out of paper that, oh, yeah. sorry, I'm getting off track. Um, no, well, it's true, but the biggest thing, I mean, that if you look at the, the mill, for example, in Bucksport that closed because the magazines were going out of business, but at the same time, there's this huge demand for coded paper yeah. Uh, and book publishers, printers will tell you that the biggest problem now to get a book from author to, to the bookstore is the supply chain of paper itself. Yeah, the supply chain, you know. I mean, there were yeah. all these other things happening. There was globalization happened, you know, during the 70s, 80s, 90s. Mothers went back to work. Make it fast, make it cheap was kind of the new thing. You know, the Berlin Wall come came down. But a lot of this was happening on the outskirts, but it it didn't affect us directly. Like we were kind of close to the action, but didn't have access to it, like globalization, you know? It was affecting the paper makers, but it wasn't affecting the people necessarily in that town. Does that make sense? Well, well, yeah, sure. Because once the product left, it becomes an abstraction. It's very, yeah, very right. real. At the point of production, and when everybody's in there uh, working, and sweating away and making it, and it's a paycheck, it's absolutely authentic and palpable. But then suddenly it goes away as waste that's invisible. It goes away as a product that, that you never actually see 
come back to you in any recognizable form. It's just a waypoint. If you have just joined us, this is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program here on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM with authors and artists invoking the spirit of Maine. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today is Carrie Arsenault, discussing her book, Milltown, a tragic story of the flourish and failure of an industry on which an entire community depended for health, wealth, and survival. I mean, the lives of these mill workers and the people that lived there, they were transactions, right? They helped turn trees into paper and the paper fed the pollution and the pollution flowed back into their bodies and the bodies of water that fed the growth of trees. The process would start all over again. It was like this, like you were talking about circuitous roots. I mean, their lives were these transactions that just kept happening. And you're right. It was an abstraction to us as long as we got our paycheck at the end of the week. And that's not to criticize anybody. I mean, paycheck, they, they were paid well too, you know, so everybody wants that. People want to have a constant paycheck and health insurance and a roof over their head. It was the price that we paid. So was unionism in the mill? Was that, that something that was early or did the paternalism to keep that from, from actually becoming a reality? No, it was there pretty early on. I didn't do a complete study of all the all the iterations of it, but it was very strong. And I mean, in the 80s, when I was in high school, you know, my father went on strike twice, even supported by the union. But it was that second strike, which was 1986, I think, which brought the mill workers to their knees. And it was never quite the same again. They didn't really get what they want. It was a philosophical argument. It wasn't about pay. It was about them not having a say in what they do in the mill. They suddenly could be told, you do this, you do this. These guys were there for 45 years doing their specialties. They had been trained and they had been loyal and they had paid their dues. And then suddenly, you know, they're being told, you have to do this, this, and this. You have to sweep the floor and then do this. And then it's kind of that, you know, multitasking. They were just, it was not the kind of mentality they were used to. And they fought against it. And scabs came in, worked. A lot of people lost their job. Fights started all over town. Friendships were ruined. Families were ruined. It was never quite the same again. And I think that speaks to the bigger thing that was happening too in the United States. I mean, unions were getting busted like that all over. And then after that, you know, companies became people in the constitution of the United States. And then there's really no turning back from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Labor became a commodity in and of itself, faceless, reduced to numbers, uh, nuances on the balance sheet, no faces, no human recognition. The demand for paper has certainly decreased. It's part of it. It's also a lot cheaper to make paper in Ecuador or something like that than it is in Maine, where there's high taxes and it's isolated and all this kind of stuff. Within the, the community itself, talk about the sort of the social structures. There was the school, there was the union, there were the churches, I assume. Everything felt, to me at least, we, we felt in the hands of the mill, right? The, the churches, everybody knew everybody, but, but the churches, the ski hill, which was a big part of our community too, the schools, most people worked in the mill. It was a good thing. Like if your father or your mother worked in the mill, that was you know a big part of your identity. So when that, when that started to also dissolve, 
identity starts to dissolve. It's like if you call yourself a fisherman, right? What if the fish are all gone? Then what are you? I don't think people think that about mill workers or industrial workers, but it's a huge part of their identity. But everything was connected. It was just, it was a, I don't know, is it a, a, a really a small, lovely community to grow up in? Well, when you, every one of those jobs lost or, or when those men died or those women died, yeah, uh, they, a skill was lost in a way, and, and a skill that was part of, of an apprenticing relationship, father to son, mother to daughter, and also in, in a, a facet or an element of the social structure, of the, so, of the cultural organization of, mm. of the town. Somebody told me once in China that every time a, a senior actor in the Chinese opera dies, an entire production of an opera is lost. Wow. That, that something as important as a, let's say it's a symphony. And suddenly, because a, a player or a conductor dies, the symphony is lost and never to be returned, lost to the, to the social fabric. Wow. And I have that feeling there, too, that if the dignity of your work has been diminished or ignored, reduced, that's a different kind of depression that's, that's psychological as opposed to economic. Right. I think I love that um, story you just told me. I never heard that. And that's that's I think that is what it felt like. I mean, with those jobs lost at the strike, but also just the diminished capacity of the mill, people leaving like me, other people leaving, not picking up sort of the baton where our fathers and mothers had worked. You know, it was three generations of my family that worked there. And that was it. Nobody else has left. It is interesting. And I think I think that's part of what I was exploring too. Like, what does it mean to be from the working class when you're no longer of the working class? More maybe than other countries, or at least some other countries, our jobs are really closely tied to our identity, right? And as, like you were saying, as manufacturing declined over the past 40, 50 years, so did the perception of that working class. Like it used to be, you know, like I was saying, you know, oh, you work in the mill, that was great. And people, it was something to be proud of. And then working class took on sort of a new tenor, I think, with the last four or five or six years. And, and it led to this perception of loss of dignity. And those perceptions, like I was saying, I, perceptions of what other people have of you can also affect your identity. It's not just who you think you are. It's what other people think you are. And if those perceptions are misconstrued, then your identity can be too. And that was something I was really trying to get at, I think, in the book was to dig at misperceptions constantly, you know, whether it be identity or whether it's about Paul Bunyan or Ed Muskie or the American dream or of Maine itself or even of history. Um, right. Those were the things I was digging at. That's the, the synergy or the separation of avocation and vocation. You know, vocation and when you were in that particular moment in the mill was an avocation that was respected and lived. When the dignity is lost, it then becomes diminished only to a vocation. The avocational aspect is lost. Pride is lost. Uh, respect from the outside is diminished. Uh, and so the vocational identity uh, becomes less and less. And you cannot, you can understand why people will feel more than disappointed, but angry. I want to add to that too, like that suddenly became this upward, this idea of upward mobility through education um, was the only way to be, right? And implicit in that promise is an insult. If you don't go to college, you're a failure. 
And inherent in that idea is that working class jobs are not as valuable. So that also happened. You got to go to college. And and my parents told me that. That was the, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it it just has an insult implicit in it. And I think that adds to it too. And yes, people are not just angry, but also had been ignored for decades and still are. I would say this still this town is still being this town and many like it. I hear from a ton of people that still being ignored, still in the periphery of like concern from their leaders or their leadership. What about these constituents? Are they valuable enough at some level to leaders that they're going to do something about it? I think leaders sort of ask themselves that question and the answer is no. So they move on to things that are bigger (laughs) and they're going to get them more votes. Sadly, it's true. (laughs) Well, it's the whole idea of, of the new paternalism, which is we're going to retrain people and yeah. give them the opportunity to become, become coders or something like that, for which they have no emotional uh, interest uh, or intellectual interest and no psychological gratification. And yet there's this odd return to handwork, craftsmanship, the understanding that these vocations are absolutely necessary for the success of any community. You simply cannot have a community that's successful that doesn't have a kind of catalog of trades. Of human bodies doing things, right? Like you were talking about that gratification. It's like a physical gratification. And even though I never worked in the mill, I have that same capacity in me. Like I have to do things that are physically gratifying. And I don't even mind doing those kind of jobs, in fact, that are that are sort of handwork. And it, I love that you mentioned that too. I never thought about that. But that return to handwork and craftsmanship, it, it only includes things that like don't involve smokestacks or, you know what I mean? I don't think people look at paper mill workers as those kind of craftsmen, but they certainly do. You know, they were making some of the best paper in the world. You know, now I guess people are making beeswax face cream or whatever you want to say. It's okay because there's not like toxic mill in the background. And that's not to say I want a toxic mill in the background, but but I think there's a different perception and it's just based on all these sort of social cues and environmental right. cues. Well, the satisfaction of craft beyond just the fact that it's a wage, that it's a paycheck of, you know, a paycheck from meaningless work as necessary as it is is an incomplete calculation of the true value of, of, of the experience. Um, yeah. And if you think about meaningful work, think about, look around whatever room you're sitting in now and how much paper do you see? <laughs> you know, we, we communicate with paper still. We want to think it's the internet, but no, paper is everywhere from the banana stickers to the packaging to the, just the notebooks and the paper, everything. We'll come back to the social, cultural parts of the community. What was your social life as a, as a young woman growing up in the town? Was it riding in fast cars or was it, something, was it something else? I think for kids that grew up when I did, and I think it still might be a little true now, um, there, were, there were three things that are, are the, the other river, the clean river that dumped into the Androscoggin. And we swam and we lived on that river. So the river and the outside, it was also the recreation park. <laughs> I'm going to say that um, it was an outside park free, you know, it was on the river. Um, and the other was called the Institute, which Hugh Chisholm actually built. It was a 
was a social place, but it was also had like basketball courts and tennis and you could learn guitar there and we had dances there. That was the inside sort of social milieu. And and that's still running today and operated today and people are still doing um, physical and social activities there. And then it's the outside arena where I think our towns were so involved in sports because frankly, there wasn't a lot of other things to do. Plus, we were so in touch with the sort of outside arena because we're living where there's trees and rivers and mountains and things. It's it's a very physical place. So it was inside, you know, that institute was still the center of, of things, that and school. And then outside was sports and, and the environment. You know, there was snowmobiling, there was skiing, there was that kind of stuff. I lived in Iowa for a while, and if you wanted to get to know the community, you you went to Little League Baseball and high school football, and the entire town was there. Every um, anomaly in the town, the good ones, the bad ones, the do-gooders, all were there, all melding together. You know what I think think helped our community Mm. was the ski area. You know, when people think of ski areas, they think expensive, but this was affordable. My father helped cut down trees, so we had lifetime passes, so we actually went for free. And it was so cheap, and I think it still is either 15 or $20 to go skiing there. And it's an incredible mountain. So it was affordable, so therefore more democratic, you know. I mean, we didn't have fancy ski equipment. You know, there was a small ski shop in town where you could buy used goods all the time. So it was a, it was a place where all... Everybody skied, you know, if it was something that you could, you could Mm -hmm. afford to ski. And we all met up there on weekends. Um, It wasn't necessarily a team thing. It was just a place to go where everybody went. My father would haul us up there every weekend and we'd meet our friends and we'd all just go crazy all day and then come back to the lodge and have a hot dog. (laughs) But it was very democratic. It was lovely. (laughs) Let's turn a little bit to the dark side. Flowing through this book uh, is the waste, the dioxin, the poison. And it's it starts out as a kind of obvious thing in the sense that it was there. No one was particularly aware. The owners of the factories uh, may not have been aware, or if they did, it didn't. they didn't care. Right. The entire community, and that's the, the sort of Rachel Carson part of this book, that I know a lot of people uh, admire, which is the documentation of how the waste spread, what were the consequences, and how people dealt with it, uh, either through resignation or denial. Resignation, denial, or just uh, if we go back to thinking like this was just something that happened. This is just what happened. This is what we got used to. You know, I didn't even really think of that term, Cancer Valley, until I started writing this book. You know, I lived in a place called Cancer Valley, and we all made fun of it like it was a joke. Oh, everybody gets cancer. (laughs) I mean, what? I mean, I'm laughing because, you know, humor was another way to deal with it, Mm -hmm. right? You covered one case history after another that adds up to a kind of documented, uh, interconnected uh, network of disease and death. I mean, it's dark. It's dark and it's sad. Well, that's what I tried to do is try to show that there's other evidence besides scientific studies. There's human people that live in towns, people that I know, people that I'm related to, and here's their story, right? This is different kind of evidence. It's not 
it's not the uh, intractable truth that you know maybe the EPA wants to know how to determine a cluster a cancer cluster but if we just step back and look at it like you're doing you know or like the book tries to do is to say this is obviously a problem i don't know how many kids at dana farber i'm going to say this so it's probably wrong but i have it in the book you know 30 kids at dana farber and you know 25 of them were from my small town you know right. having cancer it wasn't a provable cancer cluster, but like, really, let's just use our common mm. sense here, <laughs> which is what I was trying to do. But yeah, one person after the other. And in fact, in the end of the book, you know, a bunch of people that I had interviewed, including my father, died while I was writing this book. They died of cancer. Yeah. What remains? That's that's part of what remains, reckoning with what remains, is the remains of people who have died. Wasn't there a doctor in town who um, found himself in a sort of an ambivalent position, knowing what he knew, but helpless in some ways? Yeah. I mean, well, he wouldn't consider himself helpless. Doc Martin was the town doctor, and he really tried to sort of ring the bell um, to town leaders, to state reps, to the community to say, you know, there's something wrong. When people started coming to him and he started seeing cancer rates go up and up and he started hearing stories in their private conversations that told them things that he was shocked at, you know, how the mill was kind of illegally dumping stuff in the river or people were exposed and the records in the, in the mill were different than you know, they were kind of lies, you know, they would write down, oh, the guy had a cold when he really got blasted with like chlorine in his face or something like that. I'm exaggerating. Well, maybe I'm not exaggerating, but there were a lot of things. So he tried to do stuff, but he became helpless, just like we kind of all do against industry's sort of might. And and their story is it's kind of the better story, right? They, they have a lot more money, a lot more power, a lot more ways to sort of um, tell that story. And turn the tide against people like Doc Martin. And he was no angel. I mean, that's for sure. It didn't help that he was come to find out uh, very emotionally abusive towards his wife, who also has just written a book. Um, and it comes out in the fall, Terry Martin. You know, he wasn't he wasn't an angel, but he, d he did what he could, um, which was in the end, you know, I guess he helped me write this book. There were constant, numerous examples of your looking at the records and seeing the cause of death where somebody had died a kind of miserable death from cancer, and it's 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 noted as uh, flu-like symptoms, right? Yeah, uh, stuff like that. That the comp the company, even to the present day, really doesn't want anybody to know what's truly happening inside. No, and who knows? Those records are long gone. I mean, I asked for them and they're like, oh, they're long gone. Who knows if they are? I mean, that is a problem too that I was, I, the reason I wrote about that kind of stuff and that me doing the research because I wanted to show how difficult it is to get access to things like this. Like if companies do private studies or they have private records, it's impossible to get access. You go to the deep main Department of Environmental Protection, they have all the records, but they're kind of genuinely a mess. So you have to kind of dig around, know what you're looking for. It's not really organized, not their fault. It's just the way it is. So access and records and, and, and trying to wade through the morass of sheer volume of stuff was really um, difficult. It in, And that's why I actually even wrote about stuff in this book, the stuff that accumulates, like the, the, di the documents accumulated as quickly as like toxics in our blood accumulate. You know, it's just an accumulation. And what does it all add up to? 
I guess that's the question that probably remains unanswered. This is Conversations from the Point at Furs here on WERU Community Radio in Blue Hill, Maine, 89.9 FM and streaming live and archived on WERU.org. I'm speaking today with Carrie Arsenault, author of Milltown, Reckoning with What Remains, the story of Maine's paper mills and the towns and residents who have lived and died through and by their advance and decline. Well, let's let's try to answer it, at least in the context of the author. There were two parts of, of your own passage I, I am curious about. The first one is when you started to write the book, you went home, uh, you come back, reunite with classmates and friends and family, and there's an ambivalence there. There's a certain kind of caution, I think you must have felt. It's in the book. Um, yeah. There's, there's a, a little bit of a defensiveness. There's a little bit of a, an annoyance. Uh, there's something that somehow implies that your leaving uh, was, a, was an act of judgment or rejection. That's in the book. Did you feel that? And how did you deal with it? I think there's two sides of that, too. Yes, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I always kind of felt like that. But is that my fault? Is it is because I'm different or because I see them differently too? That's part of it. So I started this book from actually a place of hate. So what you sense is not only maybe people looking at me in a way and me feeling that, but also my sense of not liking this place either, right? So if you, I didn't want to write about this. I didn't want to write this book. It wasn't like, oh, I want to write about my hometown that I love. I was like... I have to write about this town that I hate. It was more like that. And what came from it, what emerged was I ended up loving it instead of the opposite. You know, you love a place and then you hate it for what it did to the people. That's the opposite of what happened to me. I started with hate. I was like, I hate this town. It's boring. It's polluted, et cetera, small-minded. But I came full circle the other way. So what you're reading is partly that too. So my own sort of vibe that I'm giving off to people. Their initial ambivalence was was valid. Yeah, totally. Of course. You know, here I come back in town. But I mean, that was that was always that way. I think with anybody that goes back to their hometown after being away for so long, they've been there a while. They've seen everything go at a very intimate pace. And I come back and I suddenly I have judgments. You know, how, who, do, who am I to judge? And so I was very careful to not write that and, and, and to just put it all on me. So that judgment was them judging me, which was accurate and probably justified. But I, what I didn't want to do was judge them because I wanted, what I really wanted to do was listen to them and, and understand and, and try to figure out why I hated this town. It's really like nut of the book. <laughs> Let's look at it in a more fundamental way. What's the reaction in town to the book? The reaction that I've been given, or, you know, I've had hundreds of emails from people in that town or from that towns like it in Maine that have been hugely supportive and congratulatory and thankful, all those things at once. And a lot of people said, you know, thank you for writing this book that is saying things that haven't been said. And to me, that was really important, not because I'm saying something for them, but because I'm I'm revealing something. 
that was the job of this book was to reveal what had been going on. And so for them to sort of understand that at a really base level was great. And also for people from towns like this, we're reading this book, which is an enormous success to me. I think a lot of environmental stories do not necessarily consider the people or their places they're writing about, and the stories are not for them. Does that make sense? They're written about them, yes. but they're not for them. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. that re- that positive reaction I got, I mean, you didn't ask that, but it felt like this is what's important to me about this book and, and that they understood what I was doing and they read it and it was for them and it was about them because also people don't write about these people. <laughs> they don't write about us. You know, I use the we in this book inter- intermittently with the I, there's a few, there's I, me, the author who left, but there's the we working class. Like I said, this is how I grew up. These are my high school friends and this is my mother who still lives there and this is my father and this is my relatives. That's the we. So yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's been criticism, but nobody's said it to my face. <laughs> so yeah, I had a huge support from my family too. You know, my family was obviously fine. Aside from the the, the prizes and the and all the rest, has the book made any impact from the the, the crusading point of view, the exposure point of view? Uh, of the dioxin situation, not only its history, but its con- its continuity. Do you feel as if that part of the of your intent has been resolved, fulfilled? No, I don't. I, I feel like, I mean, the good news is that there's a lot of um, stuff going on in Maine about PFAS chemicals on farms. And those PFAS chemicals are um, are sitting there with the dioxin, but people are just aren't talking about the dioxin which I guess is okay. Uh, um, so at least they're studying the PFAS because in the documents that I found that, you know, that sludge was from all these paper mills and it contains dioxin. It's all over Maine. It's all over the baseball fields and it's all over the farms in Maine. So so nobody's talking about dioxin because again, industry did such a good job at like saying, oh, that dioxin debate, it's over. You know, that was so 80s. And, and PFAS is the new sort of sexy thing that people are studying and talking about. And people aren't concerned about dioxin like they they should be. Um, but less dioxin, but more about these kind of forever chemicals is what they call them, which I don't really like that term because it makes it sound like positive, like forever, like you're my forever puppy yeah. or something. My forever friend. My forever my, friend, exactly. My forever my chemical. Diamond, diamonds, not dioxins, are, are, are your best friend. Oh my God, we should. Dioxin is forever instead of diamonds are forever. Yeah. So so it was really more to call attention to like those kind of toxics. And I don't, I don't know because although I have had a lot of positive reinforcement from people in the town and people in the state and people in a lot of towns like this, I haven't heard anything from, you know, leaders in the state or anything. So silence is another kind of like communication, right? I haven't heard anything. So I don't know what that means. I can only interpret it to say they're not, they don't want to address it. (laughs) Well, yes, I I guess. But I mean, the PFABs thing may bring it round again. And by the way, that situation is so detrimental and upsetting to all these young farmers that have come back to the land thinking yeah. that they're they're coming back to this not only this pristine land but this pristine process and 
unfortunately, the sins of the fathers don't let go. Uh, yeah. And uh, it carries on. And so the dioxin in the water or the dioxin in the air or the dioxin on the infield is still there. It's still there. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, I mean, I guess what the book did do and is still doing it was a book that was taken out of the library in Maine the most last year or something. So a lot of people are reading it. So, you know, when you read it, you can't really ignore what I've written. So it's a process of revealing. And then the second part of that is conversation. And I think there are a lot of conversations happening about it. And then the next step, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of steps between revealing and like change, right? You know, it's reveal conversation. It's this, 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 and then change. You know, I wasn't, I didn't set out to do any kind of Aaron Brockovich type thing. It's the myth of closure on this is, is huge. I mean, there's no Superman coming to save us or these towns. I mean, that closure is a lie. And that's why my book ends the way it does, that it doesn't close. It just opens. And, the, the the river dumping into the Atlantic Ocean. And 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 it's a way of saying, oh my, you know, the toxics are going everywhere out into the world. It's affecting all of us. But it's also to say, this is an opening. This is an opening to a conversation that I hope you all have, you know. It's not really my battle to fight in Maine. It's like, here's a little book I wrote. If you want to like look further into it, it's all your book or whatever community you're talking about. I love the final line, uh, which you just alluded to, which is the continuity of cause and effect, really, which is, again, it's McPhee's river, um, it's metaphor of existence. And your last line is, uh, I'll see if I can find it in my notes here. Yeah. Finally, slowly, cumulatively, almost indecipherably, but inexorably, with an exhausted flush. (laughs) <laughs> slips softly into the arms of the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. I mean, my other life is ocean and the sea connects all things. And so what you do upstream has terrible consequence downstream. Uh, what And it cycles round. Uh, you know, even if it dumps exhausted into the ocean, it is not exhausted. It is still going into the food chain. It is still evaporating. It is still going into the water cycle. It may still be raining down upon us and going back into the river again. And mothers feeding their babies their breast milk, which it gets even stronger. You know, those that's what? that's the real problem, you know, when we start reconstituting the stuff. And as we do, it gets stronger and stronger. It bioaccumulates and gets more toxic the further up the food chain it goes. So, so yeah. We're going to run out of time. A couple more questions, just quickly. As you look back on the whole experience, it's not over because you're still in the flush and you're doing lots of conversations and lectures and book talks and all the rest of it. But have you gotten to a point personally where that your own kind of, uh, the, the derivation, your personal derivation has, um, moved you from one place to another? Are you in a different place now than you were when, when you started out? The process was a process of change. I, that I understand. Yeah. But have, you, have your ideas about life changed as a result of having done this book and shared it with all the rest of us? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. I, I would say, I mean, absolutely 
for one thing, when I first started talking about the book, I didn't even really understand all the things that I put into it. And so over the past year and a half and just talking to people and hearing hearing what they have to say and then thinking about what they have to say, it's been like this really a conversation. And I've I have understood the book better and therefore understood myself better and what motivates me to write this kind of thing. I also have really honed in on um, how we tell stories and who gets to tell the stories and who gets to tell the histories of, of people. And that's something that I've really been thinking a lot about as I proceed to do more and different work. It's so the book it won't ever leave me because there's so many derivatives of it that are pouring into to work now that I'm thinking and of doing. It, it's not just derivative, but it's like it's expanding into like bigger things. And I it's it's like the book is a it's almost like my little, I don't know, my little Bible of other things I want to pull out from, you know? Um so mm -hmm. Yeah, I I feel like I've just touched the surface in that book of a lot of things. I don't think I, in my questions, have done justice to the craft of this book. In my notes, I, I wrote down that I found four threads of narrative. That one was a history of the specific place and circumstance. The other was your personal experience through memory and investigation. And then the third one was the shift from paternalism and social uh, to social injustice. And then finally, the spirit of a place that even so is woven to, together into a kind of fabric of example and observation. Thank you for, for understanding all that I was trying to do. Well, it's all there, Carrie. That was the thing that I found so interesting is that it was all there and it, it was sort of as if you had woven a sweater. Yeah. And I now have the sweater and I'm now going to take it apart. I'm going to unweave it and unpack it in a way into all these multiple strands. And as I was doing that, trying to prepare myself for whatever questions to ask you, I kept seeing how many different yeah. colorful moving parts that had been woven together into something that was a very nice whole. But it, when you take it apart, it becomes even more complicated. In some ways, I found much more res resonant as you took the pieces apart, because there's a story in every thread. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you saw that too, because I, I did think carefully. I mean, I, I did two main threads, which were environmental and family legacies, right? And so everything you just said kind of spurred off of those. So those were the overarching things. And the, like, again, things about mythologies, which is like a legacy. You know, there's things that were spinning off them. But like in every page, I just opened the book when you said that. In every page and in every paragraph and in every sentence, I tried to somehow lean toward those things, right? And so like I just opened this up and there was a page I'd marked. So it's probably why it opened up to this page. I'm talking about the old man of the mountain in New Hampshire. You remember that guy? But I, I wrote that he was like a figurehead on the bow of a ship cantilevered out over the edge of a great fog. You know, I thought about that image as I wrote it because that's kind of what, what I felt like I was doing too. You know, like I'm trying to see out beyond the fog of this sort of silence that had been created around this, the pollution and the cancer and it, you know, so every word and every sentence, I really thought about things and how they were going to be part of the larger whole, because that's what an environment is, right? 
All right. One more question. What's next? I am working on a book about Rachel Carson. I'm going to call it a biography for lack of a better word. And it also comes from a place of hate because I, I don't like biographies in general because I think they're problematic. And I mean, some are great, right? But I think what I have a problem with is I feel like when we're reading, we're always waiting for the point when the person becomes the person that they are. And and they don't often tell a story. It's this, you know, they were born and they died and people do it creative ways. And I'm reading some that are really incredible, but I, uh, you know, Carson's biography was done in the nineties and it's, it's basically a timeline, a chronology of her life. And so I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to try to figure out how to do something different and centered around storytelling itself. And in that, try to tell a story, not just like a timeline. You know, it's something I'm really interested in, environmental storytelling and how we can tell stories that can make kind of a difference or make a dent in all the calamities around us in the environment. Um, so I'm going to focus on that part and maybe place mm-hmm. somehow. I mean, like every story is an environmental story right now, really, every story. If you look at them closely, they either affect the environment or they're environmentally caused in some way, you know? Lack of resources. If environmentalism underlies all the problems, it also is the pathway to the solution. That's exactly what Robert Frost wrote. (laughs) I think that was in the end of the book somewhere. Yeah, I'm going to find it. Oh. Oh, yeah. I don't quote him, but so Robert Frost in his poem, Evil Tendencies Cancelled, he enumerated this idea that life and death were two sides of the same coin, um, that the trophic levels of nature could end the chestnut tree's demise. Like he was looking at the chestnut tree as like the solution to saving the chestnut was in its demise. So it's exactly yeah. what you're saying. And that's the last page. In fact, I... I looked that poem up and read it, actually, after I read that passage about the chestnut, which is really a a great passage. It would be a great passage to pull out. And I hope Orion has already put that in as its own little vignette. That would be a lovely thing. All right. I think we're done. Thank you very much. Been fun. Thank you. We could talk forever, I think. (laughs) My guest today has been Carrie Arsenault, author of Milltown. Reckoning with What Remains, published in 2020 by St. Martin's Press. Thanks for listening to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm your host, Peter Neal.